You're listening to the Careers Talk podcast series, a Salt Studios production. Have a listen to the resume of Sam Malloy, Australian Regional Director at Norman Disney and Young. He's been involved in the construction of the Eureka Tower, Amy Park, Monash University, the ANZ Centre, Rod Laver Arena, the Royal Children's Hospital and the State Library of Victoria. And that's not all of them. In this episode, Sam and I discuss how Norman Disney and Young pitched for and won the jobs and what was required to design, develop and implement projects on such scale. I want to talk to you about a few of the projects you've worked on. Now, I think it's safe to say that if you were to jump in the car and drive through any street in uh, downtown Melbourne, you could probably point out a building that you've had something to do with, right? You've worked on a lot over the Um, years. It's one of my proudest moments where I can drive around and with the family in the back or some friends and say, worked on that project, (laughs) worked on that one. This one we did as well. We started to do some work on here. It's tremendously satisfying. Proud for you, I'm sure annoying for everyone else because you don't shut up because <laughs> there's that many, right? Yeah, that is true. Because <laughs> shut up, Dad. We know about it all. Right. Let's talk about a few, I think, interesting projects. So the first one being the Royal Children's Hospital. Yeah. Now, that's a colossal beast, as are most of the projects you've worked on, but there's a there'd be some massive considerations around that. You know, you need lots of ambulance access, you need lots of equipment. Foot traffic is coming through. You're dealing with people at certain points of their life, which are not necessarily yeah. positive. There's a lot that goes into it. It's not just building a building, putting a few things on there, and then off you go. Yeah, that's right. How did this project come about, and what was your involvement in it? We teamed up with Len Lease as our client to actually bid that project for the state government at the time, and our team with Len Lease being our client, won the project. And we were ecstatic and delighted. When you start a project like that, the most important part is to develop a brief of which you can design to that sets the standard of what you want to deliver. And in developing that brief, we needed to talk to lots of stakeholders, medical departments, doctors, engineering groups to understand what their needs are, architects involved in the health planning. With those discussions, we were able to engineer a system and that was incredibly complex. We were designing theatres, we were designing emergency departments, we were looking at various wards and healthcare has changed where now it's all about evidence-based health windows, daylight, the ability to provide an ergonomic workplace for the nurses all came into play. If you go there now, there's meerkats in the foyer and that's all to provide a softer environment for the children to assist them in their rehabilitation and their health care. <laughs> They're meerkats? Yeah. <laughs> not quite? <laughs> no, not mine, but uh, I'll, I'll, well, I'll whoever claim, had it, I'll, I'll claim it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And what's the sort of feedback you've heard from uh, doctors, stakeholders, uh, patients, if you, if you know of anything like that, about what you've done there? From a patient experience and a healthcare experience, it's world class. At the time of design, you know, we did a lot of research into best practice across the world. 
and what we've delivered provides a, a health experience that leads to recovery and also leads to doctors and nurses providing the best level of care for their patients. So the feedback's been really positive. Things like patient records and the ability to provide a, an environment within the operating theatres that lends itself to different procedures has been well received. Yeah. Well, if the Royal Children's Hospital is all about improving healthcare, Amy Park is all about entertainment. That's another one you've been involved in. It's iconic. And again, we responded as part of a team with Cox Architects to a brief by government to develop a rectangular pitch. If you remember back in Melbourne, apart from the MCG and Marvel Stadium, we had Olympic Park. Oh, which that was, was a shocker, which, wasn't it? <laughs> to, to, to watch rugby or soccer. Exactly. It was terrible. Yeah. Yeah. So there was a need for you know, a world-class rectangular pitch for soccer and rugby and hockey, for whatever whatever we needed. And the government put out a design competition of which Cox Architects, who we joined in their team, won. I recall that it was the design that won that. There's no doubt the government saw that and thought, yeah, this is what Melbourne needs. Did you see some of your competitors' designs? Not at the time, but from what I understand, our team provided uh, a design that was going to be be a signature of the Melbourne skyline. And 100% is. And I can see why you won it based on the design yeah. alone. Who came up with the design? Well, the architects led it. There's no doubt about that. But the engineers had to make it work. <laughs> Fair enough, yes. <laughs> so uh, the structural engineers needed to provide a system to hold up the domes and the services engineers, which is what we do, needed to be able to make the stormwater or the, the hydraulics work. We needed to provide the air conditioning in the members' areas to make that work. We needed to provide the fire engineering design to cater for that many people safely and to evacuate in the event of, of an emergency. We needed to provide the lighting that is there now, not only from a sports lighting, but from a creative lighting and from a functional lighting point of view. We needed to provide the audiovisual, the communications, the PA, so people can hear the announcements and can hear the siren and can hear the various elements. So it's a huge task. Yeah. So words. collectively, mm. between the architects and the engineers, we needed to come up with something that was fit for purpose, that was functional, and something that Melburnians can enjoy. To that point, I mean, you know, you talk about escape routes or exit routes if, if there's a, an emergency. What sort of considerations are around that? Because, you know, you, you've got to have it to a certain standard, obviously, but then there is the other side of the coin which says in that situation people will kind of do whatever they want anyway. So they've had a couple and they don't necessarily follow the, the route they're meant to go. Is there anything like that that's got to be taken into consideration? As part of the assessment, we look at occupant characteristics and the behaviours of people. Ultimately, the design involves alternative egress. Um, it also provides early warning through detection. There's also suppression in terms of sprinklers in putting the fire out. So there's aspects of controlling the fire and then there's aspects of moving people away. 
overlaying all that is emergency procedures and evacuation planning and a managed event that is able to move people in an orderly fashion. Let's talk about the last one then. So the Eureka Tower, which is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it's still the tallest building in the Southern Hemisphere. That's right. It was, but the other one that we worked on, which was Australia 108, is now the tallest residential building in the Southern Hemisphere. Okay, so you've and still we worked got the on top. Both. Okay, we, we worked enough. on both. So you've got yeah. the top two. We've got the top two. <laughs> That's nice. Yeah, yeah, lovely. Why was there a need for the Eureka Tower? And why did it need to be so high? And same too with 108. Well, for both of those projects, when you look at a particular development, we need to look at yield. And what yield is, is that how many apartments can I build and sell to provide a particular outcome? Clearly, we were able to maximise the number of apartments, the number of levels for that particular site to provide a particular financial return. The best outcome for that is a taller building given the site constraints. Yeah. But there is an element of ego that goes to it as well. Because <laughs> oh, look, I didn't want to say it, Sam, but I was thinking that. <laughs> because architects and, and developers say, look, you know, if I can build a tallest tower, people will come there, people will want to live there. That'll put us on the map. They'll put us on the map. Yep. There's aspects of that as yeah, well. Right, okay. I imagine when, when designing these these buildings, it's obviously very different to a, a Royal Children's Hospital or an Amy Park, which are, you know, a couple of levels high. Yeah, or campus so, style yeah, arrangements. Yeah, yeah, sure. So what sort of considerations go into building something so tall yet remaining structurally sound? And that's the biggest challenge. I mean, from a structural engineer Clearly, you got wind because the higher you go and a building that's slender, it'll sway and it is designed to sway. And then it becomes a way of how do you control the sway that you don't actually feel it. So from a structural point of view, there's a lot of considerations in terms of how the building is designed, not only from its structural integrity, but its ability to move. From a building services point of view, the biggest challenge is how do you get water up the building? How do you get power up the building? How do you move air around the building? And in that sense, for a building so tall, you need to almost consider it a number of smaller buildings sitting on top of each other. So you're breaking that building down into zones so you're not overpressurizing and you're not over providing too much air at certain points that it becomes uncomfortable or it becomes unsafe. But the other aspect is, in terms of moving air and surfaces up the building, you need to be able to move people down the building in terms of a safe evacuation as well. So for both those buildings, we applied a managed or staged evacuation. So you managed certain levels at a particular time and you cascade down but also you need the ability to control fire and smoke. Again, suppression and air pressurisation and extraction systems to be able to control it. We also, which was quite unique for both those buildings, used the vertical transportation or lifts to move people up and down the building. So, you know, when you go into a building, it says, do not use lifts in terms of a fire. Well, mm -hmm. in those particular buildings, they're designed in a way that you can. 
you would have seen a lot of change throughout your career as well, particularly over the last 30 years. Yeah. When you started out, it's probably very different to what it is now. It is indeed. What are some of those changes? Oh, the biggest change is sustainability, no doubt about that. We're now building buildings which are more energy efficient. We're actually moving now towards zero carbon, so trying to limit the emissions of a particular building. We're also designing buildings with an element of wellness, like I said, sunlight, air quality, and also in relation to people's use of the particular space. So sustainability wellness, two aspects of design that have changed and will continue to change for the next decade. The technology is also a ma- massive change from when I first started. We're now designing buildings which are more automated, buildings that have a level of intelligence buildings which are designed as digital twins that you can have a a virtual copy that you can actually look and delve into in terms of its maintenance and in terms of its energy efficiency and then apply that in real life. Explain that a little further for me. So what do you mean by that? So you've got a like a web-based program. That yeah, you can, exactly. You can just sort of nominate when it when there's maintenance issues. That yeah, so, so what we're looking at now is when we design a building it's not just a dumb drawing. We actually model a building in three dimensions and each of the components in that 3D model, we attribute a value or various properties where you can then use not only in its procurement and delivery in construction, but also use as a a model to manage and maintain your building. So if this is where we're at now in terms of your industry, how much further is it going to go? Where are you going to end up? I think buildings will continue to evolve in terms of their shape, their various systems. I think it'll be a more flexible building now, the work setting and the work profile. I think buildings you'll be able to almost remote control in in terms of you'll be driving in and you'll say, oh, where do you want to sit? What technology are we going to provide to the work desk? What temperature do you want around you? And you can just dial it in as you're driving in. Um, It'll be a more interactive, flexible and agile work setting. And I imagine uh, for perhaps even yourself in the, the position you are and the new generation of engineers and people involved in this space coming through, that's a very exciting time. Yeah, I think the building industry's got a bright future in terms of innovative product, what we can offer a client, the efficiencies within a particular building. It's a pretty exciting time for Mm. sure. It's an achievement to build a house, let alone a skyscraper, hospital or sporting arena. As we've just discovered, so much goes into construction projects to deliver the result needed. But in a way, it's just like education. The more you apply yourself, develop your skills and abilities, learn and iterate, the better the outcome will be. You're listening to the Careers Talk podcast series. Assault Studios production.